Hello everybody, and welcome back to Ear Read This. I'm Ash, your host, and following on from yesterday's episode on the Bell Jar, today I am once again joined by Dr. Gail Crowther to discuss her work on Sylvia Plath. Gail has written widely about Plath. Her first book, co-authored with Elizabeth Sigmund, concentrated on 15 months of Plath's life in Devon, as she corrected the final proofs of the Bell Jar and wrote several of the poems that would go on to be collected in Ariel. Gail also wrote The Haunted Reader, a sociological look at Plath fans and followers, as well as These Ghostly Archives, in which Gail and co-author Peter K. Steinberg unearth previously unpublished material on Plath, while reflecting on the role of the archive explorer, how they haunt their subjects' artefacts, while being haunted in return by these material traces of a vanished life. Gail's latest book is Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, a fascinating work that traces the fleeting friendship of Plath and her fellow poet, Anne Sexton. If you'd like to buy a copy of the book, there's a link in the episode description box below, along with links to Gail's website and Twitter page. Now, picking up where we left off yesterday, we began by talking about the harrowing treatment Plath received whilst institutionalised. Yeah, and I think, you know, that wasn't the only thing that Plath had been subjected to while she was in there during those months. She'd had insulin therapy as well, which, you know, uh, induces fits. Uh, She'd been given uh, medication that hadn't gone through clinical trials yet in America. So it was all very experimental, I think, would be the kind kind word to use. Um, Quite brutal would be the other word that I would use. Yeah. I had no, until I read your book, I had no idea just how experimental these treatments were. I mean, I, I, I knew about Plath's electroconvulsive um, shock therapy, but I didn't know the, the sort of untrialed medication, the insulin um, therapy, which just sounds bizarre. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, perhaps that's a good uh, good link to your book. I, I, I really, it's, it's your fourth book on Plath. It is, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you've worked before on archive material and first-hand testimony of people like Elizabeth Sigmund. I was thinking it must have been a completely different experience basing a project on uh, lost conversations as opposed to found or, or re- recovered ones. Was that part of the appeal? Yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, actually. Uh, it, it was something that really appealed to me, mm. this idea of a very, very brief meeting between these two women in which we don't really have that much information about what happened during those meetings. We can just glean little bits here and there, uh, tiny little bits in Plath's journals. There's the memoir that Sexton wrote about uh, the time that she knew Plath. And little bits squeak out in letters here and there from secondary sources. But other than that, it's really hard to unpick what happened during those meetings. And I found that really fascinating. But the other thing that I found really fascinating was how brief those meetings were and what a brief amount of time they knew each other. And yet the massive impact of of those two literary giants coming together at that moment. And it's almost as if at any other time, it might have had a very different effect on them, but it was almost like they met at exactly the right time in which Sexton could influence Plath enough to suddenly relax a little bit in her poems and you know burst out and eventually develop her, her aerial voice. 
Uh, and for Sexton, who was the, the bigger poet at the time, to see that aerial voice come out and then have her own response to that after Plath's death. So this, they almost circled around each other all the time and they were sort of, their influence was backwards and forwards and round and up and down. And I, I found that really, really interesting. Would they have um, read each other by the time they met in 59? Yeah, I think so. I, I think they knew each other. I think Plath was probably a little bit more aware of Sexton than the other way around. And Sexton's quite open in saying that she didn't really pay that much attention to Plath at the time because she didn't really think she had that much to say that was very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And obviously that that changed very quickly. Mm. But I think she felt at that time that Plath hadn't found got to be careful with the use of this word authentic but she hadn't found an authentic voice and she was a little bit relying on being derivative of other people's work and so I think Sexton was as excited as everybody else when uh, she read Ariel and saw what happened. Definitely reading their their poems you get the impression that they're very very different um, poets but tackling similar subject matter often but in terms of tone they Plath is far more technical and yeah, not classic classical is the wrong way, but yeah, yes, te- technical, whereas Sexton's so conversational and direct. And uh, it seems yeah. from your book that they, they had completely different styles personally as well. I, l- I love the descriptions of Plath getting there very early, very conscientious, very serious and um, Sexton quite the opposite. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, although I don't think you're wrong to talk about Plath some, in some ways being, you know, very technical and, and you use the word classical because I think that was her education and that was her background. And, and I think that came out, especially in, in the early work. And she had the advantage and the privilege of that education and of reading all of those, you know, big poets of the literary canon, whereas Sexton didn't go to college or university and she didn't have that educational background. And I think perhaps part of that shows it in the way that they wrote in that Sexton is much more slangy, much more relaxed. Although Sexton did, you know, go in, go in for quite a, a serious level of self-education and she was very when you look at the manuscripts of her poem she's working very hard on technique and structure and maybe part of that casual slanginess is her being very skillful and being able to do that but I do think it's interesting that you know Plath refers to Sexton's work as having this ease of phrase and that's something that Plath definitely picked up from Sexton Mm. and it's almost like she she took it and she ran with it and and to a certain extent maybe out sexton sexton using it and of course that then you know when they when they first met i i think there was quite a lot of rivalry and envy and jealousy certainly on on plath's part Mm. and then after plath's death i think that switched and sexton felt quite envious of of plath and what she'd done because sexton had a, a wish that she would leave Sexton wanted to leave this dazzlingly brilliant collection of poems and then die. And then she felt that Plath had beaten her to it, that she'd stolen her death and, and, and left Ariel behind. As some of the bits that I found most most interesting was Sexton's take on Plath after Plath's death, because she just seems to have 
almost inside knowledge on what's happening to Plath, Plath's memory. Um, the the line that she's, she's, she says, oh, she is already a myth. I forget how <laughs> early that was, but that, that really hit like a stone knowing how successfully and destructively Plath was mythologized by certain people. Yeah, do you think do you think that was a that was just because they were on similar trajectories and had shared that talking about death with burned up intensity as as uh, Sexton said as well. Mm, I suppose Sexton knew how poetry worked and operated mm. and she also knew knew Plath as a woman as well. So I guess when she saw certain representations of Plath, she would have had the advantage of comparing those to the woman that she knew. But I, but I think also she perhaps felt that in those aerial poems, Plath was almost, you know, writing her own myth or the, or the mythical figure that she would become in a, in a kind of Lady Lazarus type voice, you know, that this is a very... A very unique and powerful narrator in some of those poems. So I guess Sexton understood how that worked because she she was doing that herself. You know, she was writing that herself, and she was also working on her own persona and her own. And, and Sexton did lots of public readings, and so she knew about performance. She knew about how she had to project herself and how she wanted to appear to be casual and cool and laid back but actually she was terrified she had terrible stage fright she had to have about four double vodkas before she could even go out on stage and and do a public reading and so I guess she probably saw how the poems that Plath left behind and Plath is no longer with us so she no longer has a voice how they took on a life of their own and then how Plath's publishing history, her posthumous publishing history, fueled and added to that myth, I guess, coinciding and colliding with, I believe, the advent of second wave feminism as well, where Plath was also picked up and presented in a particular way as, um, uh, you know, a victim of patriarchy and all of those early depictions of of Plath's uh, aerial voice that, that fed into this this myth of, we could almost say Sylvia Plath in inverted commas, this mythical figure that emerged. Sexton was the figure I knew much, much less about. And I, I really enjoyed the, the the sort of dual biography and exploring one in the light, light of the other. There's so many extraordinary similarities and coincidences. When did you, when did you first realise that you had hit upon these sort of parallel lives? I think when I went into Sexton's archive, which is in Austin, Texas, at the University of Texas, at the Harry Ransom Center. I had I had read Sexton prior to deciding to write about her, but I, I mainly understood Sexton through the lens of Plath. So I had never really studied Sexton as a woman in her own right, which I feel quite guilty about, although I've rectified that hopefully now. So when I first started studying Sexton, her manuscripts and her letters, her personal possessions, all of those things, was when I first started to realise all of these striking similarities, but also the massive differences as well. And it was really nice because in the archive, 
Plath kept popping up and disappearing again. And, you know, there are letters, there are two letters in there from Plath. Then a letter pops up from Aurelia Plath and then letters pop up from Ted Hughes and Alwyn Hughes. So Plath is kind of woven throughout Sexton's archive as well, uh, which I found really quite enjoyable when, when I was there and looking at the stuff. But just some of the startling similarities about them, you know, growing up in the same town, but never meeting each other. Yeah. It seems incredible. I, I, I had an idea of just how hard Plath had worked to 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 get where she was as a poet and write every submission she possibly could and try and um, win every literary prize she could. By contrast, Sexton started, well, re- returned to poetry seriously when she was about 28 and... But then she must have had a really quite sudden rise for by by the time we're in 1959 and and her and um, uh, Plather in Robert Lowell's class. How how did she take off so quickly after that? She had a, a really yeah really sudden uh, quick rise and success, and I think that was because her first volume of poetry was. I mean, it must have been really shocking when it came out, mm. and although. Lowell, Robert Lowell was was writing around similar sort of subjects around mental health. I still think that was different to a woman who is writing from a really personal experience of, of what it felt like and what it meant to be a woman. And to be writing about a woman who enjoyed sex, who had lovers, who had an abortion. I mean, even now, I think people can be a bit shocked with topics like female masturbation, but can you imagine, can you imagine in the 50s, somebody publishing a poem about female masturbation? And I think it, it was it was as much that direct and bold voice that, that captured people and shocked people and appalled people because Sexton's first um, volume of poetry got some pretty brutal reviews, particularly from men. Yeah. <laughs> Goes without saying. But I think she just burst into that Boston literary scene like a, you know, a shooting star. And and she she was very, very successful almost immediately, which it, which isn't to say that she didn't work really hard. I mean, she like Plath, she had to craft those poems and worked and reworked and dedicated herself to it. And in some ways that must have been much more challenging for her than it was for Plath because of her lack of education. And I definitely felt that when she applied to go to Robert Lowell's poetry workshop in her archive, there's her letter asking if she can go. And it's this really nervous, unsure letter. And she's included these brilliant poems for him to read. And she's a bit like, I haven't been to college or university and I don't know if I'll be suitable, but I'd really like to come along and, and he's, of course, I'm really jealous of your poems. I'd love to have you there. But th- there is that underlying insecurity with her, I think, due to a lack of education. And then she has that absolutely fantastic response line where, when Lowell says, oh, no, your, your poems are brilliant. She, she Did she reply saying something like, I won't need praise for a week? Or Yeah, I won't need any praise yeah, <laughs> for about a month. I thought that was a, <laughs> yeah. that was a wonderful line. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I mentioned the uh, Sexton referring to her and and Plath talking death with a with with burned up intensity. How important do you think it was for them to to have someone they could properly talk uh, about death with? 
I suppose it, I, I suppose, and I say suppose, because of course we don't know for sure, but I suppose it, it had to have been really important to both of them because they were both suicide survivors mm. and it must be easier, I think, for suicide survivors to recognise that in each other than it is perhaps for somebody who has never tried to take their own life to try and understand how that feels why somebody might want to do it. I mean, obviously you can empathize, but if you haven't experienced it, it's much more difficult, I think, to understand that mindset. And so I suppose they saw that the the way that Sexton writes about it and suggests is that they were both very, very taken with death, very obsessed with death. Sexton, in in an audio interview that's held in the archive, the, the whole interview is about death and she sets off saying, I am obsessed with death. Whatever I look at, whatever I do, I bring it back to death. She says, I look at green leaves on the trees and I think that they're going to die and I bring it back to, you know, and everything is for her is read through this lens of death. And I guess for Plath, that moment where she, she tried to die and didn't and came back. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, this idea of a rebirth, and uh, almost a, a reimagining of herself. That has to take so much courage and so much bravery to do that. And I suppose maybe they recognised that in each other and were able to share that in a way that perhaps somebody who had never been through that maybe wouldn't even understand. One thing I kept thinking throughout the book was not only the the gulf between now and this relatively recent area of history where there was everything from electroconvulsive therapy to, as you you mentioned, that the sorts of reviews that that female poets would get for tackling similar subject matter to a poet like Robert Lowell. But then I I was also thinking about that here's this gulf uh, on this side of the book and there seems to be almost an equivalent distance felt between both poets and their own mothers who are so much closer in time, and I mean, you you, you stress the the rebellion of of both of their uh, both Plath and and Sexton. Do you think they sort of felt out of time almost with with how extreme and and removed they were from uh, a generation as recent as their as their mothers? I think they definitely felt dissatisfied and frustrated with what societal expectations were for women at that time, and they both knew from a very young age and very early on that that would not be enough for them that to grow up get married have have a child keep a house was not where they wanted their lives to go and especially with Plath when you read those early journals when she's 17 18 she's absolutely furious about double standards gendered expectations And this swept across all areas of their life, I think, whether that was sexual double standards or whether that was not being paid the same amount as a man would be paid for doing the same job. And so I think, I don't know whether, it's hard, isn't it? Because if you're living in that moment, it's hard to know whether you feel out of time because you don't know what's going to happen in the future, I guess. And this is the thing that fascinates me about Plath and Sexton because at that time, this was pre-second wave feminism. So there wasn't a platform for, for that type of narrative around equal pay and 
sweeping aside patriarchy, all of those things that, that came later. But whether they felt out of time or not, I think they certainly and definitely felt very dissatisfied and would not, and in so many ways did not conform to societal norms. One thing you you compare throughout the the novel is the language around mental illness nowadays and and how Sexton and Plath talked about it or and were and were familiar with it. They both referred to their madness. And I was wondering, even though we are so much more familiar with mental health and its treatment, uh, it, it seemed at times as if Sexton and Plath occasionally got a felt a certain power with this undiagnosed, keeping it as an undiagnosed madness, keeping it almost something that they could uh, shape themselves. Obviously, they w- weren't given a clear diagnosis and were given, put through all of these experimental, bizarre treatments. Uh, and reading reading the story of Sexton's daughter and w- what she suffered and and forgave at the hands of her mother, I, I was interested to ask whether you thought in some ways they were better equipped to deal with the complexities of of mental illness then when it was not as uh, as labeled now that's a really interesting question and i guess i mean i i'm not a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist so it would be i i don't want to claim any uh you know medical knowledge about this but one thing that linda gray sexton does say about her mother is because early on her mother was actually diagnosed as as a hysteric and that that was the a label that stuck which seems so victorian and and because of that linda felt her mother received a particular type of treatment that was geared towards her mother being you know being treated for hysteria when in fact if she had maybe been alive today she would have been given a different label uh which Linda speculates might have been bipolar, and she would have maybe received treatment or medication that would have allowed her to live uh, a much more comfortable life. So I guess that could go either way, really. I suppose in- increased knowledge uh, can can certainly help with treatment. Uh, but as you say, also categorizing and labeling people brings its own stigma as well. And that can be can, can be quite restrictive, too. So I guess I'm a little bit out of my area of expertise here. I, I feel that there could be elements of both of those things going on. So when it came to, to researching these these conversations at the Ritz, um, you, you mentioned the the scraps we have of of Plath's journals and 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 what Sexton wrote. Was, was there any other um, uh, key sources? I was wondering if if George Starbuck, who'd who'd joined them um, for some of these martini afternoons, uh, uh, whether he'd written much about what was said. And he he did write uh, a little bit about it. He seemed to. And I don't know if this was a result of the Martinez. He seemed to somehow miss the point. I felt a little <laughs> bit. Like he, he he treated it all as as a big joke. It's oh, these women—they were talking about their psychiatrists and oh. having these suicide moments. <laughs> and it seemed to perhaps not pick up on. And he admitted he he hadn't understood how seriously ill Plath had been. And only found that out at a later date. Now, to be fair to Starbuck, that might have been the tone in which Plath and Sexton discussed it. They might have been quite lighthearted about it. They might have made jokes about it. They both had quite a wicked sense of humour. 
But I, I don't know. I, I felt it was interesting to get his take on it and how he experienced it. So there was him, there was Sexton's memoir, there were moments in Plath's um, journals where she writes about it. And then just occasionally there would be time travel moments where then in 1962, Plath would write a letter to Sexton and would say something about, you know, give me all the gossip on, on the House of Lowell. And you realise then that they were probably gossiping about that tutor in those, those sessions at the Ritz. And then in Sexton's archive, as she's writing about Plath after Plath's death, little moments pop up where she talks about those martini afternoons and, and what they spoke about. So it's really sifting through all of this stuff, um, of which there, you know, there wasn't a huge amount but I still feel there was enough to make that this slightly enigmatic framework for the book, really. And so how did you hit upon that that framework? The structure for the book came about because I didn't want to write a traditional chronological biography. And I wanted to write something that was thematic rather than chronological. And the idea for the for the book, for, for writing about the two characters, the, the hook for me w- w- was those meetings because that, that was the time that they were together. They were so few. And so that became almost the central point of the book. And from that, I then wanted to meander off into different directions to explore the sort of orbit around those meetings and what had gone on before those meetings, what was going on during those meetings, and then what happened after those meetings. And it seemed to me that a uh, an interesting way to do that would be to do it thematically rather than do you know Sylvia Plath was born in 1932 and 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 do it that way and so I suppose I just thought it might be a more interesting read and it certainly it was more challenging I think to write and structure that way but it also the fact that it clicked into place quite easily when I was building up the plan and the structure made me feel it was something that could work. Um, and I hope it did. I, I hope it does. I think structuring it that way, as opposed to chronological, gives you such an interesting cultural history as well mm. to contextualise thematically and and have that historical misogyny and, and mental health current thinking, as well as um, the, the, the poetic world as well. There, there are a handful of names in there that I'm familiar with. Obviously, I, I knew Robert Lowell, but the... the, the it's always interesting to see which which poets they're sort of brushing up against on e- on either side. Who are the sort of old dogs and who who's who's yeah. sort of coming on up as well? And really interesting to to imagine Sexton and Plath in the same in the same pool like that. Mm, definitely, and I think the one thing that really struck me was when I went to Boston and saw the actual room that mm. the workshop took place in, which is tiny. Really? I'm trying to imagine Plath, Sexton, Lowell and about 15 other students crammed into this room and wondering how, you know, because I think these these people necessarily and deservedly take on a huge place in, they certainly take a huge place in my head anyway, that they're mm. incredible women. And I almost think you could hardly cram Plath into that tiny room, <laughs> never mind Sexton as well and a lot of other people. So I... That was a shocking moment for me as well, to think just 
how physically close they they would have been as well. They must have been literally rubbing shoulders with each other. Knee to knee. And it must have been really suffocating with sexton cigarette smoke as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least she brought her shoes to stub them out. Yeah, handy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apart from the uh, martini afternoons, what what did both of them get out of the the, the Robert Lowell workshops? Were they were they was it a turning point for either of them, or, um, either creatively or, or in terms of opportunities? I think definitely with Plath, we see as she becomes more familiar with Sexton's work that she drops some of her resentment and jealousy towards Sexton and realizes that. Sexton is doing something really important and really unique and she talks about being jealous of the type of subject matter that Sexton is writing about and that gradually then creeps into her own work. Mm. I think at that stage certainly the the influence was much more one way. I think Plath probably got more from Sexton at that point than, than Sexton did from Plath but also I imagine it just must have been quite stimulating for Sexton, who, as I mentioned, hadn't been to college and didn't have that traditional educational background to be mixing and meeting with other poets in that way and to be able to share her work and have people comment on her work. Although what I do find really interesting and quite amusing is, and I'm sure we've all been there in those awkward university seminars where nobody speaks and there's a really terrible atmosphere that that some of the memories of other students in that room are of this awkward coughing and shuffling and silences and so I'm sure that would have been up for debate with the, the martinis afterwards as well and I think Lowell could be quite sometimes could be quite rude quite pushy quite insensitive maybe so I imagine that my, my feeling is that being in that seminar would have been both stimulating, slightly awkward and a little bit terrifying as well. How did it compare to your to your previous books, just coming back to the centering on lost conversations? Did, did you find that it, you, you were sharing more opinion on on Plath and, and what, what was it like re, sort of rebuilding or, or uh, reimagining? certain conversations was it did you feel there was more sort of speculation involved I think there was necessarily uh, a bit more speculation and I think sometimes I I wrote that into the text mm. which some people will like and some people won't like because I know that Traditionally, biography tends to shy away from speculation and, and sticks to fact. But I know when I'm reading biographies and there are gaps and absences that as a reader, I speculate mm. as I'm reading the text. And so I thought it might be quite interesting to drop the odd bit of my mental speculation into, into the actual text. And as I say, some people like that and some people don't. But that, but that I think, is one of the... You know, being able to be quite playful like that in a text is, and there isn't there isn't a huge amount of it in there anyway. But I do feel that that's what a reader must be thinking as well as they're faced with these silences and gaps. But I think that's necessarily true, pretty much of any book that you write. And 
the book prior to this, These Ghostly Archives, was very much about how archives are all about stories and tell stories, but they're also about gaps and absences. And what do you do when you reach a, an absence and you can't fill it and you can't find it? And there, th those silences are as fascinating as the information that pours out of archives because there's something really enigmatic and also very maddening about it, this elusive moment that you're wanting to find and just can't find it. And how close it feels at, at the same time as how, how lost it is. I, I, yeah. You described the, was it the address book of, of Sexton still smelling of cigarettes? <laughs> Yes, I, I mean that was such a moment, such a moment in the archive because it came in a in a cardboard box, and I I just lifted it out of the box and it was really sticky to the touch. It's this red plastic cover and it was all sticky and slightly dirty and then there was just this waft of nicotine that, as I picked it out, and you know it I there were there are just these moments where archives are like that where it's quite a shuddery moment where you almost feel you're in the study with her and she's she's dropping her cigarette ash all over and and all of her letters and manuscripts have cigarette burns in them because she's you know she was obviously a chain smoker and was always um <laughs> always had a cigarette in her hand but the, the address book was very evocative your research process must have almost coincided with everything happening last year what was it like researching a book was it mid-pandemic or, or, or pre-pandemic? I was so lucky. I got. I, I went to um, Austin in September 2019, and then I went to New York and Boston in January 2020. So I I just got back about. It must have been about six or seven weeks before lockdown. So I. I'd managed to to get it all in, um, and I had I had started writing at that point as well. But the second half of the book was written during lockdown, which was a uniquely isolating experience. Yeah, I think of course, would be a, a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, at least it was at the writing stage, I guess. Yes, mm -hmm. and I think that I think that trying trying to research a book during pandemic pandemic times is a, a very challenging experience uh, one that I'm going through at the moment where you can't you can't travel you can't get into an archive archives are shut and it's really interesting how how brilliant archives are at adapting and trying to get you access to, to the material that you're just not allowed to see and handle and I've had all sorts of over the last couple of months really interesting experiences. Possibly the best one of being a Zoom visit to an archive oh, where really? an archivist got the boxes out, turned the camera around so the camera was pointed and then picked everything up so I could see it over Zoom and, and then recorded it so I could revisit and make notes and, and things like that. So it's it's a, yeah it's definitely about how I think creative uh, people can be at a time when there's really nothing we can do about things. Oh well, I very much hope you can get your hands on and and smell archives again soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me too. I miss them a lot. <laughs>
the the sort of lack of contact and the lack, you know, not having a book launch and not being able to sign oh, yes, books and of all of that kind of thing is really weird as well. So yeah. Will you have a physical launch when once it's once it's possible, or is there a paperback? Yeah, but yeah, maybe. Oh, I hadn't thought of that actually. Maybe because I was I was busy sulking in April because the book the book's with an American publisher, so I was meant to be in New York in April. So I was busy like sulking because I couldn't. Um, well, partly sulking and partly pleased that I didn't have to fly because I hate flying. But uh, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe there, there might be something around the paperback, but. Yeah, I don't know. And the the paperback's interesting. It looks completely different because this book's all black and white and fifties, and the paperback's got this full color image on the front. It's the same image, but it's it's been colorized. Oh so right, okay. It looks yeah. completely different. Oh well, if it maybe if it looks differently enough, it it, it will demand a launch at the Ritz. <laughs> at the Ritz. I mean, that would be that would be perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And that's all we have time for today. A huge thank you once again to Dr. Gail Crowther. Remember, there's a link below where you can purchase a copy of Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, happy reading. <laughs>